0: Hello, I'm Samia Ariane. I'm the founder of Fempeak, a women-led inclusive platform where visionary individuals come to gain live access to global leaders and learn about cutting-edge topics in macroeconomics, Web3, and next-gen health and wellness. My guest on today's podcast is someone who I've been following for a very long time and listening to her fantastic podcast, Laura Shin is the host of Unchained, one of the best crypto podcasts out there. And when she worked at Forbes, she became the first mainstream journalist to cover crypto full time. You also absolutely must read her books, Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. I'm a huge fan of Laura and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you will too. So as a longtime listener of your podcast, I have to say that I'm uh, really uh, honored that you uh, are giving me your time, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm just really excited to be able to have this conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I think by the time this podcast is released probably your book is going to be out as well. So um, I'm really looking forward to reading it and I've also ordered it to listen to it as well. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, the book Let's start with that. I'd love to start with the book because I'm so excited about it. Tell me why did you write it you know and and what is it about?
1: Yeah well thank you first of all for being such a loyal listener of my podcast. It really means a lot you know I started that almost on a whim, I guess you could say, because at the time I was a contributor at Forbes, meaning like I was a freelancer and I just saw that they had launched 12 podcasts and I said to my editor, Oh, I want to start a podcast. And I um, basically became the 13th Forbes podcast uh, just because I like begged so intently on <laughs> creating one. And so they let me do it. And I actually think mine is the only one that's still going. So, you know, lucky number 13. Um, and that was five and a half years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. So I really appreciate that you have been listening to my show. Um, you know, actually, one other thing is that the podcast is what enabled me to write the book. Mm -hmm. Um, after I launched it, I think like a year and a half later, finally, the downloads were to a point where someone that was working for me said, Hey, we could be charging this amount for sponsorships. I had no clue. And I was like, Whoa, that's more than I make at my job. (laughs) So then I quit Forbes and I, uh, ended up spending kind of like less than 50% of my time on the podcast and then more than 50% on the book and the book. So at that time, it was actually early 2018. And for those who have been following crypto for a while, you will know that that was kind of the peak of the last bull market. It was sort of like the height of the mania. And, you know, I had just lived through this kind of crazy experience. My 2017 was just one of the most wild rides of my life. You know, just the year started where Again, I was begging my editors to let me cover this full time. They weren't even they were just like, no, nobody's interested. And then as the year went on, like things just were picking up so quickly. There was just so much interest that I was getting all these other job offers. And so my editors were finally like, okay, okay, you can cover this full time. We'll we'll hire you at Forbes full-time to cover this. And um, and then yeah, like I said, just everything else just happened with all these billions of dollars flowing to all these initial coin offerings. And it was very clear that. This was the first time that crypto really became a global phenomenon. So I decided that I would write a book kind of describing how that happened, like what, uh, what, what happened during that time, and then like what were the factors that led to that. And really, Ethereum is the main platform that all the initial coin offerings were happening on. And so the book basically just kind of became mostly a history of Ethereum. So kind of like maybe two thirds to three quarters of it is a history of Ethereum. And then- after uh, we we kind of bring it up to a certain place in its history, then all of a sudden, all these like initial coin offerings and everything are taking place, and so the end of the book kind of like branches out into some of the other storylines from that period. But that's basically what it's about. And I would also add that during that time, Vitalik Buterin, you know, he started Ethereum when he was a teenager he had the idea at that time he uh not soon after or very very soon after um pre- presenting ethereum for the first time at the north american bitcoin conference in miami he turned 20 but really the the book in a way ends up being kind of like a coming of age story about him as well because he really just you know did not understand very much even about human nature when he began the project and through a lot of the events that happened I think he really learned a lot along the way about you know frankly what other people can be like and you know he's kind of like a more pure figure and so um as people might be well aware in the crypto space because there's money involved you can get a lot of people that are in it for their own self motivated reasons. And so, um, you know, through through a bunch of lessons regarding that, I think he really grew a lot too.
0: That's fascinating, fascinating. Uh, So tell me, Laura, um, you've been in this space uh, all this time, what are some of the reactions that you get from especially women, right, when you are, you know, out and about, and you meet people, uh, you know, especially women who are maybe new to this space, you know, and they're like, they find out what it is that you do what are some of the reactions you get because it's been super interesting for us since i've started covering crypto on the fempeak platform and interesting interesting uh, feedback like some some people absolutely hate it some people absolutely love it and there's so many people that are on the fence and they're like "Oof, this is so interesting but i'm so afraid and i can't go and and you know, I wonder. You know, uh, I think that from what I see, women have more extreme reactions. They're more like, you know, um, this has been my experience. So, what's what's been your uh, observation in terms of people's reactions in general when you say you cover crypto, and uh, and then women especially.
1: You know, by and large, I actually think most people think is really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, I, I can't even think if like women have, a a very different response to that. I actually think most women think it's cool. Mm-hmm. I do know though, that amongst my own personal friends, I have not really been able to get any of them really interested in it, men or women. Oh, <laughs> there, really? there was one, there was one friend, um, like one of my best friends from grad school. Um, he's a guy and he's Austrian and, um, but, but he's totally fluent in English. And, you know, I would like tell him all about this and like be excited. And then one time, like a year or two after I'd really gotten into it, he finally read an article on it in German. And like, then he was like texting me all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I've been telling you oh, this I for agree. years. Like, like, I, this is what I've been excited about. He was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really get it. And so like, I read this article, I guess, cause it was like a long form article. Mm-hmm. Um, this was just funny. I was like, oh, I guess maybe if I spoke German, like he would have gotten it. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I find generally like people think it's interesting and they're, um, interested, but like I said, when it comes to my own personal friends, like, they'll listen to me and they kind of like get a little excited, but then do they actually get into it to, to the point where they're kind of following up on the news their own? No, none of them have. NFTs really is probably the first time that that's yeah. happened just mm-hmm. because most of my friends are creative types like me. Like, you know, I'm a writer and like my best friend's an artist, and actor. And, uh, another really close friend, friend of mine is a, uh, um, a, musician. Another close friend is both a writer. And then also she was doing a lot of start, a lot of stuff in like the art world, like, you know, with, uh, just with uh, galleries and, and stuff like that. So just like I have all these friends that are that work in that world. And so then now finally with NFTs, like actually now I'm starting to see some sustained interest where they're like thinking of like, oh, how can I, you know, work in this? How can I get into NFTs? Like stuff like that. So this is like kind of the first time where they sort of seem personally interested. But even then it's really only the creative friends.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting you say that because I've noticed that there are so many people who are saying now they are interested in it for the first time because of NFTs. They're like, what is this thing? You know, how can I make money with it? How can I? you know, a lot of, a lot of artists, a lot of, of women who are uh, thinking like content creators, you know, who are in marketing, they're like, you know, what does this mean to me? And then they come into it and they realize, oh, okay. So NFTs are related to crypto. Okay. So le- like, and then like, yeah, they're a form of crypto. And, you know, then, then they're like, okay, so I need to learn about crypto, but yeah, it's been so interesting. I, I've had so many women who are telling me that they're interested in NFTs, but they're not interested in crypto. And I'm like, it's like it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know? And they're like, how can I buy it just with a credit card and not have anything to do with blockchain? <laughs> so do you get this kind of questions?
1: Well. You know, I, I will say that uh, there's a, a very prominent crypto person named Fred Ursum. He was the co-founder of Coinbase and he tweeted when the NFT thing started taking off oh, it turns out a lot more people are interested in culture than money. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that is so true. You know, and like I was saying about my real friends, like, yes, that is the case. So it doesn't surprise me that these friends of yours are like, oh, we'll we'll totally do NFTs, but we don't want to deal with the crypto stuff. Because like a lot of people, they're not interested in, they're either not interested in money or they kind of like consider it like a hassle or a headache or, you know, it's just like, oh, bills or, you know what I mean? Like they sort of have this like certain attitude about it. So. So it totally makes sense. Whereas like culture, like NFTs, it's like feels fun and it feels like, oh, like I want to do that. Not like I have to do it. So I think that's why people have this perception, but I think what they don't get is that crypto can be fun too. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's not like, you know, normal money. This is just my opinion. Um, But I mean, yeah, what I will say is like, so if you, if you start experimenting with crypto, I mean, especially for me, so so when I stumbled upon Bitcoin, I was covering fintech, which is like financial technology, but really what it is, is just like slapping on a fancy digital veneer onto like the old banking system. (laughs) Um, So it's not actually like really breakthrough technology, in my opinion. Hopefully I'm not offending people who work in fintech. (laughs) Um, But the point is that I remember the first time, you know, I transacted using like Bitcoin or Ethereum and like these coins just like being amazed at how quickly the money moved because, you know, I, so I have like, for instance, my business checking and then my personal checking, like literally moving money between like my two own bank accounts. Like, I mean, granted one is for my business and the other is personal, but still like that can take like five days. (laughs) So it's just, you know, when you're used to that and, and especially i have been learning even more about all the different like uh, processes with banking and the kind of the problems and why there are these delays and fees and stuff like that. Then, yeah, once I just really experimented with crypto, I was like, whoa, this is definitely going to change the world because it's just, just like far superior in so many levels. And granted, I mean, right now there's like high fees just because there's so much demand and there isn't enough what's called block space, like, like the, the blockchains themselves are just getting full at the moment. And um, there will be what are called scaling solutions, like ways to uh, you know allow this to process more transactions at once. But at the moment, um, you know, really the the demand is sort of outstripping supply. So clearly that the technology can improve. I'm not saying it's like the be all end all at the moment, but uh, the basic bones are there, you know? So, um, yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, yeah, super interesting. And one of the things that um, actually, you know, going back to that culture thing, do you think the fact that, um, let's say, for example, Vitalik, when he um, came up with the idea for uh, Ethereum. Do you think the fact that he was like a 19-year-old boy, essentially, had an impact on the disconnect with the way that this could be, you know, culturalized earlier, you know what I mean? Like that it could be connected with culture. Um, you know, like if, if he had the input from um you know, maybe some uh, older people around him, or or maybe especially women. The fact that women were pretty much completely absent in that early days of uh, conceiving cryptocurrencies. Uh, do you think that has an impact on the fact that it's taken so long for culture to come and become part of this?
1: Well, so so I so I, I just want to explain what Ethereum is to to give an understanding of how it works. So so you understand actually probably Vitalik really couldn't have uh, shaped it in that way. Um, the reason is so like, so his idea for creating Ethereum, even in the first place was, you know, Bitcoin at that time was, had already been out for, um, a few years and it was already successful. I mean, not like in a major way, not the way it is now, but, but like it, you know, had gone up to, um, So basically like literally right at the time he was writing the quote unquote white paper for Ethereum, the price at the moment was shooting up from like, you know, 100 to basically it would uh, go through a thousand within a a month's time, or maybe it was like 200 to 1200. And he was noticing that all these other people were trying to develop new blockchains, but the way they were doing it was, so Bitcoin was basically built for payments and these other blockchains were trying to kind of like add features on and- he thought, wait, people are just doing it this way. Then every time a new blockchain comes along with an added feature, then nobody's going to want to use the old ones. They're just going to want to use the ones with the new features. And so he thought, why can't it be more like an app store where anybody can upload any application they want? And um, it should just be like, you know this platform where it's built around like a programming language, so then anybody can just go in with an idea and upload uh, what are called decentralized applications. Because because the breakthrough with Bitcoin really is that it's decentralized, and so he was like, there should be able to be any kind of decentralized application. So um, Ethereum was really built around a language, and it's built not to have like you know specific features. So um, it, for the initial coin craze, what happened there was that somebody built a standard for creating new tokens. It's called the ERC 20 token standard. And then that meant that any, cause like before then people, whenever they created a new token, they were doing it sort of like from scratch. But then once this standard was created, then like, it just made it easy for anybody. If they just followed that standard to, for all the exchanges to list it and, you know, all that stuff. And then it just created kind of, um, just like a faster, Way to kind of get your new token going. And so when it comes to NFTs, a very similar thing happened. There were NFTs that were created kind of like earlier in 2017, but people, again, were doing it by scratch. And then later on, there was what's called the ERC 721 token standard, which is the first NFT token standard. And then so then after that, we saw a lot more NFTs. Um, But Vitalik himself isn't, he just, Create, you know, well, actually, and then this gets into even too much detail, but he didn't didn't actually even create the language, you know, he thought it up that this is how it should function. But then there were other people that actually like created the language. Um, but the point is that so he didn't really like shape Ethereum that way, he just made it open-ended. He, mm-hmm. you know, he designed it to be that way so that other people could build on top of it, and that's really what Ethereum is. So yeah. So Vitalik wasn't like shaping Ethereum in at that level. There were other people really that were doing that. And, and when I say like ERC and then there's like a number, it's, it's all based on, it stands for Ethereum Request for Comments. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically like this message board where like people are like, hey, I have this idea. And then people like discuss the idea and then they're like, oh, okay. Like we'll make that a new standard for blah, blah, blah. And so th- that's why you get all these like ERC, you know, number, blah, blah, blah for mm-hmm. this or that.
0: And do you, in the book, um, do you go into, uh, without giving away the whole book, but do you go into the, into the uh, Ethereum roadmap and, you know, where they are now and all the um, uh, the controversies right now about, okay, so why is this taking so long and how is this
1: going? To- no, oh, okay. no, no, no. Because the book really just tells the story, like I said, of, you know, how the initial coin offering craze happen. And it basically ends in January, 2018. Okay. And, um, I do have an epilogue at the end that kind of like updates people and stuff, but it's, it really just like touches very briefly on things. And, um, yeah, the book really is more like a story. It's just told like, like it will read like fiction to people, but it's all, uh, what we call narrative nonfiction, meaning everything is verified. You know, my fact checker and I went through everything and like Like, especially, you know, for instance, if we only had a fact from one source, we will say that, um, you know, so it's just, you'll read it and it will just read like a story, but I often will, you know, say either where I'm getting information or if I don't, it's because like I got it from multiple people. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just stating it as a fact, um, but it really reads. Yeah. Just more like a good tale, like kind of a, Yeah.
0: So where right. do you see? Uh, so we are now in 2022. The book ends in 2018. You said where do you do you think that there will be like a, a second uh, version like that will be like so this is where we are now in a few years. Do you
1: think well, like, honestly you know, that's so important, right? I mean, honestly, I'm watching what's going on with the NFTs and the DAOs, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if you know this could be my next book. Yeah. But I sort of feel like I need for events to play out more because it's only like you can kind of only see the story in hindsight. Do you know what I mean? To figure out like what was important. Um, so I, you know, I'm definitely like collecting information and like ideas. Like I have kind of like some, I mean, it's not like super organized or anything, but maybe I should make it more organized. I had this like dream the other night and then I woke up and I was like, oh, I definitely should be like taking better notes. (laughs) Um, but anyway, (laughs) you know you're
0: really lo- you really love what you do when you have dreams right I'm the same like I wake up with ideas you know <laughs> That's, that is so fun. so tell me about uh, what, what do you see happening right now in this DAO um, model it's just so fascinating you know I was I was giving a lecture on our platform the other day and I was saying that uh, you know to me it's kind of like this is a whole new form of Governance that is that is being created, right? And it's like you know, uh, in uh, in human history, we've gone from uh, monarchy to representative democracy, and then we are going into this decentralized, you know, form of democracy. And DAOs seem to be like the next generation of that. But the way I see it, like the ultimate version of the DAO is that our machines make the decisions on our behalf, rather than we make the decision.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no a dow is
0: i know yeah, i know what a dow a- is but i'm thinking like the, the next generation of the dow oh the people. next generation <laughs> yes. yeah so like i think it's going to quickly morph into that because if you think about it like your devices know more about you right like you're you know as we are going into this era where look, let, let's say for example this this ring this is my Aura ring it knows more about the state of my body than i do right like every morning i wake up it gives me a a score for how well I slept and how ready I, am. so it tells me how ready I am for the day. So what if the next? Like I think I wonder because that maybe that's a singularity. I'm sure you've probably read the singularity is near. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the? Because I just wonder whether. So maybe you can tell our viewers or and listeners because this will be on on YouTube as well. Um, tell tell the people who are who are watching or listening to this. Um, yeah, what is a DAO and what do you see uh, the future of it being? Where is it going?
1: So DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization but this is why uh, when initially I thought you were just talking about normal DAOs and you were saying it's going to be automated. I was like, no, no, no. Like, even though it's called an autonomous organization, it's not because basically people in DAOs end up voting. Um, they're supposed to vote or they can they can delegate their votes too. But um, it really just depends on the rules of whatever DAO they're involved in. Um, but essentially a DAO is just like, A group of people who are organized typically by a token, meaning that that DAO has a token and then there's like different rules around the DAO. Like for instance, some, there are some DAOs where, you know, you have to own X number of the token in order to even be a member and get into the discord. So then, you know, the token is sort of being used as like kind of a ticket or it's like a, you know, but it's what they call a token gated discord. Um, other times, the the tokens are being used for governance, meaning that like people will put forth a proposal and they'll say like we have this idea for you know this thing to do with this protocol or or in the DAO, and then people will use their tokens to vote. And um, you know there is, uh, I mean, usually it's just a straight you know, majority vote. Um, but, but that often means that the whales will dominate the vote. Um, but I know a lot of these communities are like trying to do things, you know, so that the whales don't dominate or the, or the whales will even say like, we're not going to vote with as many tokens as we have, or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. There's just a lot of different ways to handle that kind of thing. Um, and so essentially Dallas really can be for any purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, the, in my book, I actually cover kind of the first major DAO, which was called the DAO. And um, that was structured as a decentralized venture fund. And they raised, uh, it was actually the largest crowdfunding event in history at its time. And they raised what was like $140 million on the, on that day. And eventually the, the price of ETH was rising so quickly that uh, it became a quarter of a billion uh, very quickly. But it, um, it ended up not really working out at all because it very quickly got hacked. And so um, you will read all about that. There was just so much craziness. So at the time it was the biggest DAO and very quickly got hacked and that resulted in the creation of Ethereum Classic. But the point is that that DAO, the purpose of it was to be this decentralized venture fund. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different purpose from one of the more popular recent DAOs that we've seen, which sprang up in a week, which was Constitution Dow. and Constitution DAO raised fifty million dollars. Like I said, in less than a week, and their goal was to buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution that was coming up for auction at Sotheby's. And eventually, they did not win the auction. Um, but you know, all of this is just to say, like, there's so many reasons why you could create a DAO, right? There's like, it's just like any organization; it can have any kind of purpose that you want. What's interesting to me is the day that we're recording is a day when, um, this company called syndicate Dow released this new product that they're calling web three investment clubs. And so in the U S we have like a lot of restrictions around like, you know, uh, people who investment. can invest in, in, different types of opportunities. Yeah. Um, but there is an area that's, uh, not regulated or, or meaning, you know, you, you can do it, but, but like, uh, it, you don't need like special, there, there's no special thing you have to do with regulators to do it. And there are these investment clubs and they're restricted to 99 people. And so they just created a Web3 version of it. And uh, basically uh, they were saying, because a lot of people right now in crypto, they're, uh, what's the word, investing or trading via chat groups, right? And so they were like, okay, well, so basically this just like turns your chat group into, you know, yeah. a, a little DAO. Like you just hook up your, your wallet and then... Um, Yeah. You become this investment club. And what's interesting speaking about women is that the groups that they're launching with, half of them are female led or all female DAOs. And so I actually interviewed a few of those women leading those DAOs. And they were talking about how they sort of feel like, you know, like DAOs, because DAOs are all about community. And so one of the women was saying that she feels like she sees a lot of women um, they know how to kind of like navigate that world really well, like a, about doing things for community and like, you know, bringing everybody together. And so, you know, she was just like, I feel like women are really well poised in that world to like, you know, be active leaders. And yeah, what was interesting when I asked the syndicate Dow um, co-founders about it, cause they're two guys, I said, Oh, how did you end up with half of your uh, launch DAOs being being female led? And he was like, you know, we didn't try to do it. It was just like organic. We were just reaching out to people that had like a mission or values aligned with our values. And then at the end, when we got all the DAOs together, we realized, oh, half of these are are female led or even like all female DAOs. Um, So it's just like just happened organically. But, um, one of the women, um, you know, she comes from the VC world, she's a GP at a VC firm. And she was saying that, um, like a bunch of, a bunch of her friends have been, you know, doing, uh, like trading or or different things in the crypto world, but they feel like, you know, their, um, male peers are ahead of the game because guys have tended to get into crypto earlier. And so she actually was like, when she heard about this product, she was like, Oh, this is a way to get more women in quickly, you know, because you can have these groups of 99 people. And what she said was like, some of the people in the group will be better with like DeFi, decentralized finance, and some people will be better with NFTs, but all the people in the group can benefit in the upside. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like all the women have to individually become experts in this field. It's like if yeah. they, you know, join this investment DAO then, and they have friends that know this, then they can benefit. So it was like really interesting to me. And so, you know, who knows where this whole DAO world is going to take us, especially with women. I'm excited to watch.
0: Yeah. I I think that there's definitely something really unique in there. And, and, um, you know, I call myself a tech philosopher because I studied philosophy of technology and, and um, political philosophy. So I'm always looking at uh, the, uh, you know, the cross section of philosophy and technology, and I just really see a day where, like, uh, that our. Uh, the machines around us will become so sophisticated that we would be quite happy to let them make decisions on our behalf because they would make better decisions. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I'm not saying that should happen or it's a good thing. I'm just saying, I think it will happen. I think that you know, increasingly, you know, I think that increasingly we are going to trust our uh, machines more and more. And part of the reason why I'm really keen about getting more women into technology is because those machines are all being designed by men, mostly white men, and women are not part of the creation of them. So the machines, the devices, the, the software being written is being written with a, a male point of view, uh, if you yeah. will. Right? And, I mean,
1: yeah. you know, it's funny that you have faith in all that, because the truth is that I, I don't trust devices like that. Like I you know, I'm one of those people. Like, I will never have something like an Alexa in my in my house. Like, I just That's will not allow that. I, and I don't like going to people's houses where they have that on. Um, and I don't have I, an Alexa actually, but I um,
0: I mean, I'm I'm really into wearables because uh, I like to be able to measure things in my body, in my you know, brain and things like that. <laughs> You know, but at the same time, I know what you mean, but do you think there is a way to actually get away from it? You know, I think that over time it's just going to become so commonplace. And it's so interesting for somebody like yourself being in this in this space that you're not into it.
1: Well. Um- I mean, I, honestly, I think most crypto people wouldn't trust, a, a, especially like a listening device. Um, you know, I'm not sure about something like an Aura Ring or or a Fitbit or whatever. I personally, I guess I just don't do that because what? why not? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I'm definitely into health and wellness. You know, I'm kind of one of those people I like love to meditate and do yoga and like my breathing practices. I just started Wim Hof and I've been like doing that every day for a few weeks and, you know, do infrared sauna, like all these things. But yeah, I... Yeah, I guess I don't like the idea of something collecting data on me at that level.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting, but but this is where blockchain comes in, right? Like if that data was using blockchain, it was collected in a way that it could be still used to um, make that look. My sleep has become so much better thanks to my own <laughs> Honestly, because because when you wake up in the morning and you see the score being so bad, you know, then you think, okay, next, like tonight, I'm going to go to bed a bit earlier, but it's kind of like, if you don't weigh yourself or if you don't look measure anything, you know, and you just kind of let go, you know, then you, then, uh, you know, every night you sleep half an hour later, half an hour later, and then all of a sudden, you know, things become. So for me personally, I'm like really a data person. I want to know data, but at the same time, why I love blockchain is because, I can see the possibility of that data being collected and used in a way that I still have, um, you know, uh, control over it. And I'm not giving it to Mark Zuckerberg. You know what I
1: mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that is one of the big things that I know different people are working on, because definitely crypto people are also vary into, you know, just decentralization in general. And so they're always thinking about ways to kind of move from this centralized web that we have into something more decentralized. And I definitely know there are a few different projects that have been working on things like that. Um, I definitely think they're sort of in their infancy at the moment. Um, You know, I I haven't like looked into any of them in a big way recently. So maybe I just don't know the latest, but um, there are certain use cases, I will say, where I sort of feel like they're going to be kind of a bit further out. Um, In general, I feel like anything involving kind of like off-chain information or off-chain data, as we put it, and connecting that to the blockchain I feel like that it's just going to be a challenge because there's so much, there's so many ways in which people can like scam things or fake things or, you know, and so if you end up getting fraudulent information on the blockchain, it's just like not useful. You know what I'm saying? So like, I remember a long time ago, um, one of, there was an entrepreneur who pitched me about their new notary service. And my first question was, oh, how are you, are you verifying this data? How are you verifying it? And they were like, oh no, we don't, we just timestamp it. And I was like, oh, okay. So if I come to you with a lie and I'm like, can you notarize it? And we are just going to put the lie in the blockchain. He was like, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> okay. okay, let's like, tell like, who cares? Like it's not useful. Um, and I said, you know, what if I do it like uh, yeah, with a spam email? And he was like, yeah, well, people know that that spam email existed at that moment in time. And I was just like, yeah. I, I don't think this is what people like really need. Yeah, <laughs> um, and eventually they pivoted things. to something else.
0: I, th- I wonder, if th- I think there is a lot of misconception that, a lot of people are thinking that anything that's on the blockchain can be trusted just because it's on the blockchain. They're not, they're not like, they're. Like, everything centralized is bad and everything has to be decentralized. But at what cost? Right. And we are not there yet. And I think that education is so important. Um, also, Laura, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the metaverse, you know, talking about Zuckerberg. Uh, it just reminded me of, of asking you about that. Have you talked about that in the book at all?
1: No, no. Because, you know, the metaverse That's wasn't the really discussed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, Chapter. I think at the very end, I like mentioned some stuff about NFTs. I don't remember if I actually used the word metaverse, but clearly, you know, everybody, that was the big buzzword. I feel like four to six weeks ago. Yeah,
0: <laughs> um, yeah, and sure. then
1: now I feel like it's being talked about a little bit less, but what I will say is I have been in some of these virtual worlds, especially like the the more crypto native ones, like the decentralized ones. And um I mean they're fascinating. You know, one of them is called Somnium Space. This one, so uh there was like this NFT event in Prague. And um I put on the headset and you know was like using this to maneuver around in there. And what was fascinating is so this company Somnium Space created it, but they didn't like create all the buildings and all the features of this land, right? people who like independently own different NFTs, like, like it's like real estate. They were just going in there and building their own things. So it's like organic, like, like mm-hmm. just any old city where it's just different people coming in and building different things that they want to build. So it was just fascinating, you know, to kind of see what that was like. And, um, you know, I know that they have things like concerts in that space. And um, one of the creators actually had this like special, I don't even know what to call it, Um, uh, but it's basically like clothing with sensors built in so that when he goes into the virtual world, people can see his full body. And if he's like dancing around to the music or whatever, like people can see that because he's got sensors all over his, you know, his arms and legs and his torso and everything. So that was, that was also really interesting to me. And I definitely feel like, you know, it's just, a natural evolution of the fact that so much more of our lives are going digital. You know, if you just think about what our lives are like today versus 10 years ago, or even frankly, like two or three years ago, because the pandemic really accelerated a lot of this movement to digital. And so it's just going to be more like that. And so it just makes sense that we would now own actual objects digitally in and be able to carry them, from world to world, you know. So I feel like we're already seeing that happen in a very small way, and so it's just going to grow bigger. It it just it just feels like a very natural, organic thing to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, when I when I think about why we are here on this earth, I, t- I think a lot about these things because being a philosopher, you know, uh, uh, for me, I the- studied I
1: mean, philosophy did- too in college. Did you? What What did you study? I, I studied Nietzsche and Kant. Oh, my God. I wrote my college thesis on Nietzsche. Me too. I didn't know that. Me too. (laughs) I wrote my my master's thesis on Nietzsche
0: and Kant's uh, philosophy of science and, and, uh, you know, their impact on their political philosophy
1: okay so mine was more like about religion but it was similar because I you know Nietzsche had this whole theory basically that science came along and kind of like killed religion like his whole God is yes. dead thing was yes. basically saying like science is the new God yes. so I wrote my thesis about that
0: that's so interesting no, that's <laughs> like yeah supposed
1: he- to yeah. That's so funny. I know he's my favorite philosopher. He Me definitely too. has like, he's like my yeah, favorite he has the most personality. <laughs> that is. That's That makes sense
0: why I love your podcast so much you're a Nietzschean <laughs> because I'm a Nietzschean, you know, like I, I always have these meditation sessions where in my uh, imagination, I go and talk to this person who is like my guide or whatever. And and he's always in the form of Nietzsche, you know, and I like going to this like chalet kind of place and I'm like sitting there talking to Nietzsche (laughs) and I got like, I I download my ideas, you know, from him. But I'm, yeah, my, my philosophy of life is really impacted by him. And I think that, you know, I believe that life is all about uh, creating new experiences. And this is really why we are here to create new experiences. And um, I'm fascinated by the concept of the metaverse and then you know the virtual lives. And and um, you know uh, I left Iran. I am originally from Iran. I left Iran when I was 23. Came to the UK. Um, been here now for 17 years. And uh, came here to study. Never been back. Um, I can't go back for political reasons. I haven't seen my family all this time, you know. Oh, and sorry. Yeah, it's like um, you know, it's it's you know, there are times like especially every year around the Persian New Year, which is like 21st of March you know, I, uh, for many years, I've been, uh, now I'm a little bit better with that. But like I, I used to go into a bit of depression, because it was like, you know, I couldn't go back. And I couldn't, uh, I, could, I was like, I felt rootless, because I felt like I didn't have a root here. And I didn't have a root there, you know, like here, like, for example, whenever it's Christmas, because I don't have a, f- a family here, you know, I don't have that kind of, you know, connection with, you know the type of um, experiences that that uh, people have with about Christmas and the, like the kind of sense of nostalgia, like as they're go- growing up. I haven't had that, right? And right. and then I'm also away from the Persian community, and I don't have any you know, Persian friends, and and uh, in that sense, and I don't have that. So I was thinking, like, for a very long time. There's there's been times that I was like, I was willing to pay someone to go to the streets where I grew up, which was you know I grew up in. In a very poor area of south of Tehran but for me it's really empowering now that I've become very successful to kind of look back at where I grew up and you know to be able to see like to go back in like I would I would love like you know one of the best experiences that I could possibly have would be like if I could go back if I if for if it wasn't for political reasons and I could just travel back and go to the school where I used to go to school you know and and just go to that school and like walk in those same you know um, stairs and going to those same classrooms where like I didn't do well you know and I was told that I would never amount to anything you know and just like look at that and like look at like where I am now and look at I feel like it gives me the chills thinking about it. And I can see the metaverse being able to enable us to recreate those experiences and, and those, you know, moments and to be able to reunite it with, you know, our loved ones that we, um, you know, that maybe we can't see in real life, you know? So imagine yeah. how empowering it would be. And then maybe also to empower you, to, to enable you to go back and, and connect with people that are dead, you know, like that, that maybe, you know, oh. loved ones don't, like there's that's a,
1: happening, that's happening already.
0: Yeah. And yeah, there's, but- there's, uh, there are people I know that they're working on, um, mm-hmm. you know, chatbots that can, uh, that are programmed based on somebody who's dead. And it was fascinating. And if you could recreate that.
1: Yeah. I, but before I talk about that, I actually just wanted to say about your dream about revisiting your school. You can do that in your meditation, you know, just the way you described go, yeah. how you in meditation go to that. Nietzsche and go to your chalet. And yeah, I mean, you can do that in your own. Yeah. You don't need the metaverse. You can just I do know. My own imagination. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: would be quite fun to do it, you know. And, and you know, I, I wonder if like there's, I can see an, a business opportunity there as well, because being a business person, you know, as well, like, you know, that could be a really good business model to recreate worlds for people you
1: know, like, yeah, well, I mean, people ideas. are doing it. Yeah. 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 But, like, but, but land. yeah, no, your idea to do it like a personal experience, that is cool. You should, you should do that. Yes. Like, <laughs> shall we do it together? Let's raise money <laughs> 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 you know, to recreate
0: people's, you know? Uh, yeah, I think like, like that's a business opportunity. People would pay a lot of money to be able to recreate those experiences.
1: You, yeah, you would need, um, probably like photos of the place or something. And then, cause like, for instance, I don't know if any listeners have done, um, I forget what they're called, but, but basically there's like these online interior design services. And, um, when you use them, like you just kind of provide kind of the basic layout of the space and then some photos, and then they'll like, just do this. I don't, I don't even know what's called, but it, it's just like a very realistic look of what you're a new room would look like with all the different pieces that you selected. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, 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 um, yeah. yeah. So the technology is definitely there. Um, but as I wanted to talk about this thing about the experiences with dead people because um shoot, I cannot remember who where I had this conversation. I feel like it was either on my podcast or like oh I, I know, yeah, it was on my podcast. It was the episode with John Egan and Andrew Steinwald. I don't know if you remember that one, but they were talking, John Egan was talking about how uh, there is some service where, um, basically, uh, they're using AI and this is what he was talking about. This is where the metaverse is going, but, but that is already here that people are already doing this where you can like talk to, you know, your, your dead relatives or, or, you know, dead loved ones. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I'll have to look up that episode to see exactly what he said, but I remember right when you mentioned it, it was like, I know somebody's already doing this somewhere in the world. (laughs)
0: I think it would be fascinating I really hope in your next book you start to kind of explore these things because you're in such a good place like I've listened to and your podcast is so interesting because you cover such a broad spectrum of people like you know I was uh, listening there was one where you had somebody who was Bitcoin trading based on astrology, you know, this lady, oh, right. you know, and it turned out that I was so surprised that you had such a knowledge of astrology. I
1: was like, okay, you know, oh, I used to teach yoga and oh. in the yoga world, everyone's constantly talking about all the planets all the time. And so each, yeah, I, I taught yoga for a long time. So yes, I know a lot about astrology. I
0: wonder, <laughs> I wonder how that ladies, uh, I have to go back and listen and see, uh, remember because I wonder if her um, predictions came through. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah,
1: that's a good. I will have to check. Yeah, that's a good question.
0: She had these predictions about Bitcoin and Ethereum and you know all that stuff, and I need to go back and listen. I'm pretty sure she didn't she didn't say there was going to be a, a big crash the way that it's been <laughs> you know, very much that yeah
1: I, I I really don't remember I definitely remember though that as it, I don't know if, how much you follow things like plan b um, yeah I do follow he, yeah yeah because he had predicted that it was going to be like 100k by I think yeah and I forget, forget November happen. or December yeah and then she was like yeah I, I don't see that happening and um and then yeah it didn't happen obviously Yeah.
0: So actually, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So uh, actually going, going to, um, you know, to mentioning plan B, do you think we are now in a, okay. So this is one of the things that I mentioned recently in in one of my um, peak sessions, I was like, we are now going towards the singularity, you know, and, and things are becoming so complex that it's really, really going to become more and more difficult to predict anything. Because, you know, like the the level of complexity of the world is increasing so much. And the whole point of, so tell me, I keep talking about the singularity. Tell me if you, what are your views on that?
1: Oh, well, so I have not read uh, uh, whatever it was that you said how- Oh, Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity Is Near. Okay, that basically what he's saying is
0: that uh, by 2029, AI will be able to pass the Turing test. And by, uh, you know, 2045, the, uh, we will be in a complete, you know, state of singularity, which is basically where all of the laws of, um, uh, in, I mean, obviously he's taking the term singularity from physics in terms of, you know, being the, the depth of a black hole. But uh, in this case, what he's talking about is like that, where all the laws of society break down. And, and you know, and also other books like *The Fourth Turning*, *The Sovereign Individual*. You know, all of them essentially, basically saying pretty much the same thing: that we are going towards this maximum state of complexity, and it's uh, and uh, the laws of um, you know governance and society are going to break down. And we don't, we, you know, nobody really knows what will happen. But you know, it's like where technology is going to essentially take over, and nobody really knows, you know, what will happen. But it, it's like potentially we are going to become, to merge with, uh, with computers, which you don't like, you know, and we're going to merge with, with, you know, machines and, and, uh, and AI. Um, but that is happening, right? Right? Like, honestly, that is happening. When you think of the, the metaverse, you know, the, the um, even the decentralization, you know, like, I, I just think we are, we are merging with technology. And we are. And I mean, you know, you, yeah. Look I mean, at the state of the governments. You know, what what's going to be the future of governance?
1: So a couple of things. So first, I feel like we need to define merge with technology, yes. because you know, I like we're not like cyborgs or anything, right? We're just you know, you choose to wear an aura ring, and I choose not to. So I I don't have like technology, uh, you know, very close to my body, you know, for long stretches of the day I mean I carry my phone I guess but that's
0: but so how about the mind. younger generation though because they're like you know if you think of the digital natives they don't know a life without technology
1: yeah I know I just I don't know I I, I think they are definitely I just emerging. I don't <laughs> I, mean, I don't it, have children
0: it, it, part of the reason why I, I don't know if you have children but I don't have children I made a decision not to because I feel like the future of humanity is so uncertain. I wouldn't know what to do. Like if I had a kid, I don't know what the right answer is. Should I take the, the um, you know, the iPad away from them? Should I not? Should I let them be constantly online? I, I don't know the answer. So it's easier not to have
1: kids. I mean, I think there's like, it's just like anything in life. There's no one right answer, right? Like you just make whatever you think is the best choice in the moment. Um, but you know, what I will say is, so in general, I feel like oftentimes there's a lot of kind of like overblown hype about what the potential of technology will be ultimately. And then when you actually get there, like it still is like pretty much, you know, humans are just being humans and they they now have this added capability. Like I, I remember just with one friend, I was having a lot of debates about, um, how automation, like this person felt like automation is going to, um, I kind of like destroy so many jobs in such a fast way and it's going to be unprecedented and blah blah blah. And I was like, mm, I don't know, that's been predicted so many times in history, and instead each new technology just brings about new jobs. It might destroy old jobs, but it brings about new jobs. And like, there are certain people where, yeah, their skills might not be needed anymore. Um, But then either they'll like get, you know, they can transfer their skills probably to some new field. Um, You know, a lot of people do that all the time. And so when it comes to this kind of like singularity thing, like a part of me is like, Oh, I wonder if it's just that people will now organize themselves by DAOs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is like a powerful way to organize people and because as we've been saying, like so much more of our world is digital, it's just very natural that there needs to be a way to like to really truly organize people digitally and not in a way where, you know, the group couldn't be cut off from the platform, or you know whatever it might be, like like you know because obviously there have been a lot of different platforms that have been popular for organizing groups, and they just kind of keep coming and going. It was like in my book, it's like Skype groups were the thing because mm-hmm. uh, during that during that time, like a lot of people are in Skype groups, and then like later in the book, it's like Slack, and then this was even before Telegram, and like then yeah. then it was like Telegram, which kind of became more popular sort of after my book. And then now it's discord. So, I mean, this is just in the span of like the seven years I've been covering crypto. Right. (laughs) So it's kind of, it's just like funny that, um, you know, even within that time, like it's all switched. Right. But I could see how now, if you have a token, it like helps kind of keep the community better because like, there's like this financial, uh, element to it. And so, you know, it, it just makes sense to me that that would sort of evolve. And like, there kind of needs to be this way to organize groups of people digitally online. And, you know, do I really think it's going to be super destabilizing the world governments? Like at the moment? No. I mean, maybe like after we die, maybe, Mm -hmm. but like, I kind of doubt before like the next five years that, right, exactly. So, um, that's so, super
0: interesting. Yeah. Super. Interesting. Yeah. So
1: I don't know. I, if I were you, I wouldn't read too much into all these like technological prognostications. Yeah. I guess I need to go back and talk to Nietzsche.
0: <laughs> well, this has been so fascinating. Okay. I have one last question and that is, um, as someone who has been at the heart of all of these conversations, you've obviously done so many uh, podcasts, um, episodes around, you know, the regulations and things are happening uh, in this space. When we are talking about the tokenization, I, th- I feel like that is such a powerful tool to solve so many problems. For example, one of the problems that I'm really passionate about solving is to get more women interested in finance and tech. Uh, because I feel like this, these are two areas of our lives where everything be- is being designed Uh, mostly by men and women are not part of it how do I get how do I change culture you know because we have been grown up uh, uh, being told that you know you're not good with um, uh, numbers you're not good with math you're not good with money that you know you're not a leader that you know all of those things that that you know our generations especially like for somebody like me coming from Iran you know that kind of that's kind of many of us in general, even in the West, women have not grown up with having the kind of confidence and to be seen as leaders and, and you know, financial um, uh, leaders, especially as well. So the way I see it, I've been thinking for a long time, you know, what if we could use tokenization as a tool to incentivize more women? You know, just like we are using tokenization to te- to let people play games, you know, to, uh, to earn, to play, what if we could use that, that same kind of mentality and same kind of methodology to get women interested in, uh, you know, finance and tech and all these things. And, but when I think about it, you know, on the other hand, and I'm now talking to investors, et cetera, uh, on the other hand, you know, there's this big, Cloud of regulatory issues in the back of my mind, and I'm like, you know, like you create this whole system, and then regulations they will come in and they will say, like, you know, oh, this is security, this is non security. This, you know, what's what from where you stand, what would you say to somebody who is like trying to use this new technology to create any kind of system, any kind of you know business to solve a real world problem, but they are. Faced with this big cloud of regulatory uncertainty, where would you, you know, from where you stand, where where do you think these people should go? Like me, and you know, who should we look at?
1: So obviously, nothing I'm going to say here is either legal or financial advice. Oh. But for sure, you're right. Regulators are mm-hmm. um, kind of like, or regulations are a big question mark right now in crypto, particularly in the US. Frankly. Uh, which is, you know, it's the home of the world's biggest financial markets, and um, it, it just has like the world's most ro- robust financial system. And right now, at the moment, yeah, the the regulatory front in the U.S. looks probably, uh, yeah, more on the dicey side than um, even at times past when, uh, yeah, there were definitely like regulators in the past who also were very negative on crypto. But something that I think probably will affect the way that all of this shakes out is that we're because we're already seeing this um you know the fact of the matter is that the crypto community has a lot of money and politicians when they're like running their campaigns what are they looking for they're looking for money Mm. and so something that's interesting is here in the u.s So definitely in the Trump administration, there were definitely people that were super (laughs) anti-crypto. And so it's funny because then when the Biden administration came in, they appointed somebody named Gary Gensler to be SEC chair and Gary Gensler has a deep background in blockchain. He was teaching a blockchain course at MIT. He's like given numerous talks about it. He clearly understands the technology. And so people kind of assumed, oh, he's going to be friendlier to this technology because he knows it really well. Whereas like for some of the Trump people that were anti, it just seemed like they had no idea even what they were talking about. And so interestingly, Gary Gensler you know, becomes SEC chair. And then it becomes very clear that he thinks the vast majority of crypto assets are securities, which in the US, um, uh, issuers of securities have to, for instance, like, you know, register with SEC and like give disclosures. And there's just like a lot of regulation on different securities. And so um, this is not really what the crypto community wants because they have really mostly uh, been treated as commodities, actually, which is just a, a looser regime. Um, And frankly, also the vast majority of the financial assets in the world are commodities, not securities. So it's been that the CFTC has the community, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission has been the default regulator, I think for a little while, but it's not settled at all. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is that uh, recently the more vocal anti-crypto people have tended to be Democrats. There are many Democrats that are pro-crypto. So it's not like you know, at all like a clear bipartisan or sorry partisan issue, but definitely some of the more vocal voices are definitely Democrats. So um, we are now already seeing a bunch of new uh, Democratic candidates because this is a midterm election year. Yeah, they are campaigning on a pro crypto, pro Bitcoin, pro Web three platform, and they're getting a lot of donations from the crypto community because of their stance. And so we will see how that affects, you know, the Democratic stance. I mean, well, let's put it this way. Definitely kind of like higher up in the Biden administration. It does look like there tends to be a more negative view on it. And then, for instance, um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is, uh, you know, one of the more prominent Democrats, she has made negative comments. Uh, There's another one. I don't think people take him super seriously. But there's a House representative named Brad Sherman who's done things like called for a ban on cryptocurrencies. And then uh, people, I mean, he, he, he just, when he makes his speeches, sometimes they're a little bit, um, easily mockable, let's say. Um, so, you know, there, there definitely is just like this perception that the Democrats tend to be more anti, but like I said, we're already seeing all these new democratic candidates. They're being like, no, this actually aligns with my progressive values or this aligns with, you know, these planks of the democratic platform. And so like, you know, I'm a Democrat and I'm pro crypto, I'm pro Bitcoin I'm pro web three, whatever. Um, so that's why I actually wonder if the regulations really will turn out to be as strict or onerous as it sort of looks like right now because the lawmakers they're the ones who make the laws and right now yeah the regulations um so let's put it this way the regulations you know they were made decades ago and so when gary gensler wants to apply them now um People are saying, well, it doesn't make sense for crypto. These were, these laws really refer to like different types of financial instruments, but he's saying, no, 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 it, it still applies here. And, um, but the thing is actually, he ha- he wrote a letter to Elizabeth Warren saying, I need more authority to, to um, regulate crypto assets because the law doesn't give him really the powers that he actually wants. So who knows once the midterms happen and we kind of see how this affects the politicians that are elected. I mean, if the crypto community really does pour in a lot of money and it does manage to shake up the midterms, then we could see more lawmakers becoming more pro-crypto. And then that, like I said, would affect the regulations. So yeah, we may not have to be too worried about regulations, but it could also just go the other way. It may be that crypto pours a lot of money in, but it doesn't actually sway the voting and then yeah. we're still left with the regulations. So I, I don't know what's going to happen.
0: It's a sad state of affairs that something that's supposed to be decentralized has to go to the length to do, you know, to do that, to lobby, because Mm -hmm. the whole concept of lobbying is against, you know, in some ways, the whole concept of decentralization.
1: Right. But as far as I can tell, I think what Gary Gensler is saying that he's saying they're not actually decentralized. That they, they are centralized. They just are pretending to be decentralized. Yeah. That is, I, I think, his his view. His, his view, okay. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to say to you when you said that you hadn't read my book, I, like, I don't know if you knew, you could have uh, gotten a galley. Um, okay. Do you know what a galley is? It's like an advanced copy. No, no. How do I get that? Yes. Yeah, so, you- I mean, I guess at this point, you'd have to get the electronic version, but the publicist can give you um, an electronic version at, it's a, a site called NetGalley netgalley.com. okay the and only you,
0: issue is that uh, the reason i've been waiting for i was waiting for the um audio version because uh, uh, i'm more of a listening uh, kind of right. person you know and did you do that oh, narrate the audio yourself i did yeah oh amazing yeah, yeah So i was waiting for that but that seems like it's coming 22nd of february or something yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. um i can yeah and yeah the the book is coming out the Feb- february 22nd the whole both printed and uh, audiobook. My audiobook engineer knew nothing about crypto when we started. And I mean, he loves my book. He became completely obsessed with crypto. He, like, you know, bought a hardware wallet, all this stuff. Oh, it was so funny. That's so cool. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, I was really pleased because, you know, we started on a Monday and it, on Wednesday at lunchtime. So it's like two and a half days of recording. He says to me, he's like asking me all these questions about crypto. And I was like, how, how do you know so much about crypto? And he was like, from your book, <laughs> like two and a half days of recording, and he like picked up enough knowledge. That I thought he was like really knowledgeable about crypto, but he knew nothing when we started on Monday. Yeah, and then yeah, and he was like, Laura, you don't understand. I listen to like 150 audiobooks a year through my work. He was like, I almost never pay attention. He was like, This is like the first time in a long time I even like the book. Like I'm like so I love this book. And so I was like, Oh my God, like, I just felt really, I mean, he like hugged me when we finished. He was like, I'm so sad to not be recording with you anymore. Oh, and like,
0: That's so, amazing. I'm going to keep yeah. all of these, this conversation. I'm going to keep it in the, in the main podcast because it's been recorded and, and people listen, they will, you know, they will hear that. And they'll be like, I'm definitely buying this book, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate your time. You know, I, uh, like I said, I'm a long time listener uh and I pretty much don't miss any uh any of your podcasts you know for the past um at least over a year I've been listening to it so since I discovered it um so really really big fan of your work and I think you're doing brilliantly thank you so much for your time thank
1: you yeah I really enjoyed this conversation amazing thank you and uh I'm so glad that you're into Nietzsche (laughs) oh my god I know that was so funny (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you Laura thank you take care bye-bye yeah You too.
0: What a great conversation with Laura. Please be sure to get her book now. You will love it. She's done an amazing job of explaining the history of crypto in a very accessible way that anyone can connect with. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. Finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai, register, and join to stay in the know and ahead of the curve.